Let's read the Bible together. Um, James chapter 4, it's on the second of those two sheets you have on your, on your page. Uh, alternatively, if you've got your Bible with you, open up. We do have a, a few journals left as well for those of you who have been tracking with the, the teaching series. Um, Bible journals uh, for the book of James with a bit of space. There's the text on one side and a bit of space to write notes as, as we go through. So they're available for purchase at the back as well after the service. Let's read together James 4, 1 through verse 12. This is God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let laughter, let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against anyone, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? Um, as, as we've been saying um, from the start of this series, James um, does not leave us in any doubt as to what he really means. It's pretty easy to understand what he means. The hard thing with James is accepting it and, and, and trying to respond in light of what he teaches. It's like a sledgehammer. Every, every sermon to me feels like a, a sledgehammer that he takes to us, um, but in a good way. Sometimes you need to break down to build up, right? And uh, that includes a bit of uh, destruction at times, and that's okay uh, because that's God's way of building up his people to make us more like Jesus. Um, and this text here uh, is, is a particularly tricky one, um, tricky for me to preach, I must admit, tricky for us to, to, to get our heads around, um, because it deals with a, a very large problem, as you, you can probably tell when you, when you read through. It deals with this problem of fighting and, and bickering and conflict within the church, and it's painful. It's painful to read because it hits home uh, to many of us, particularly if you've maybe come from a church background. Um, maybe you've experienced something of fighting and conflict within the church. Maybe you have uh, been right in the thick of it, as I have, unfortunately, at times. Um, outsiders, you know, people outside the church um, will often look in at the church and they'll perceive us to be arguing and bickering. Uh, they, they, they will look in and, and see these things and say, look, there's no peace within the church. What's the, what's the point in joining? We're better off just spending time uh, you know, doing good works and helping the poor. They, there's no attraction if a church is, is full of conflict and, and, and fighting. And even as insiders, and again, if you have come from a church background, um, conflict and fighting, I, I believe, is one of the key reasons why the local church and, and what it stands for is, is devalued in our, in our vision, in our, in our values. Um, especially, I must admit, as a, as a blow-in, perhaps I can see this 
uh, in a, in a, from a different perspective, but um, I have never heard of the level and the number of church splits as I have since I've moved to Northern Ireland. It's a, it's a sad fact, not that it doesn't happen where I'm from, you know, from England or whatever, but uh, um, it just seems to happen so frequently here. The church is split and counter-split and keep on splitting. And the effect of that is that it produces worn-out Christians, just dog-tired of, of church and politics and bickering and, and all that stuff. And so many people from a Christian background wander away from the local church. They still love God. They still have a faith in Jesus and yet they have no faith, no conviction about the church. It's just better to be separate from all of that. And they'll go off and search for spiritual experiences outside of the church, some of which might be helpful, some of which might be unhelpful, but all to avoid local church politics. But see, this conflict within the local church is not a, not a new thing. It's certainly not a contemporary issue, um, as we see here. But not only here in the book of James, we see um, throughout the Bible, particularly the New Testament, St. Paul, for example, writes to uh, his understudies, the sort of uh, trainee uh, younger pastors, Timothy, and to Titus. He writes letters to Corinth, the church in Corinth, about conflict within the local church. John himself, St. John, writes letters about conflict within the local church. He writes to the churches of Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. And again, James here today pointing out conflict within the church is not just a, a new thing. It is an ancient thing. It is a pressure. It is a, it is a risk that always comes against the church. As, as we've been going through the book of James together as a, as a, as a group, we have, have been looking at how James helps us to distinguish between real religion um, the religion of Jesus and his person and his works and, and the religion of his apostles after him, the real religion that takes all that in, into our hearts and, and, and allows us to be transformed from the inside out versus the fake form, the fake form of religion. And we've been seeing week after week how he teases those two apart. He's not so interested, James, in, in what's going on outside the church, but he is interested in, 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 in within the church. And and there is this particular form of, of Christianity, um, which is a fake form. It looks Christian, sounds Christian, people speak Christian words, they do some Christian things. And yet, as we're seeing, whether it comes to suffering, whether it comes to uh, works, good works, whether it comes to the use of our tongue, he's distinguishing between a fake form of religion and the true form. And so we see that here as well. We see that here in, in, in devastating consequences and if anything it's sort of building up to this crescendo in chapter four so we're going to look um, this morning under these three headings of this this text uh, number one we're going to consider the nature of church conflict number two we're going to look at the root of church conflict and thirdly and finally the solution of church conflict so the nature the root and the solution the nature of church conflict then we see in verses one two and three what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, he says in verse 1. There seems to be a, a war going on. Uh, it's sort of left by him undefined. We don't know specifically what James is seeing or hearing about in the church. Um, but I suspect that he leaves it open because he anticipates this is a perennial ongoing problem that churches will find themselves tackling in the future. What causes wars and conflicts among you? Why are you doing it, says James. 
he answers his own question. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? And here's how it looks. Verse 2, you desire and you do not have, and so you murder. You cover, covet, sorry, and you do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is how it looks. You will go to war, he says. You will, you will do anything to, to serve your inner passions, your inner selfish desires, whatever works. You'll even kill someone, whether that's metaphorically with your words or, or physically or, or whatever. You will seek to remove someone from the scenario so that you can get what you want. Whether it's internally killing someone or externally killing someone in thought, word, and deed, that's what he's getting at here. You will, you, will, you will seek to minimize or reduce or, 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 or get someone out. You will use worldly means to fulfill your passions, to get what you want. You can just imagine a church like this with people like that within it. It's not a happy place, is it? It's, it could be described as a toxic church, to use a modern phrase. It's not a church that gives life and breathes joy. It is a church that robs life and sucks joy. Toxic. How else does a church in conflict look where he says in verses 2 and 3, the second half of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. And if you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking God for something to spend wrongly on your sinful passions. Your prayers are not being answered if you're praying them because you're just asking for stuff you want, for your own power, your own influence to grow. You're not asking for God's name. You're not asking for his kingdom to come. You're, you're all about yourself. Just to be clear, when it comes to passion or desire, passion and desire are not necessarily a bad thing in and of themselves. In fact, uh, passion or desire could be understood as the drive for us to attain what our heart really wants, what our heart loves, what, what we go after. The, the old Puritans called it the affections. What have you set your heart on? That's what you desire. That's your passion. And, and, and we as human beings were created to have passions, to have drives and desires. So, so, so the, the, the very presence of those things in our lives and in our church is, is okay, it's good, it's part of our humanity. And we were created to desire originally that which is good, that which is pure, that which is lovely, that which is, is, is of the kingdom of God, that which is God himself. That, that was how we were originally created. But uh, just in case you're unaware, we're, we're not currently living in the Garden of Eden. And that, that, that place right at the beginning of, of, of the book of Genesis in the Bible, where everything was right, everything was pure, everything was perfect, we're not there. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell prey to sin. They, they desired their own passions for, the, for their own ends, for themselves, not, not for God, not for his name, not for his kingdom. They wanted to build themselves and, 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 and not him. And so fast forward to today when we have desire and we have passion and we have drive and we have zeal, some of that can be good, but not all of it. 
because it's tainted, it's, 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 it's deviated in on ourselves, as uh, Martin Luther put it. The human heart is curved in on itself. And so the Bible presents us in a tricky position. It says, in fact, we are a slave to our desires, a slave to our passions because they're not completely pure. We're curved in on ourselves. We ultimately want our own glory, our own blessing, our own power, and so forth. So passion is not necessarily a bad thing, but when it's bent in on itself, it can be. And that is the kind of passion and desire that James is talking about, the stuff that desires you and you alone. Also, just, just so we know as well, uh, some conflict is, is good. Some conflict is good. Conflict can be done well, it's necessary and healthy uh, when, we, when we have differences and we deal with that with real wisdom. For example, Jesus uh, could be described as uh, somebody who was uh, very co- commonly found in conflict, especially with Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of his day, the religious leaders. Um, they couldn't understand him. They wouldn't understand him. And so they tried as hard as they could to to reject him and to undermine him and to sort of relegate his wisdom and his teaching. They failed in that, but they tried as hard as they could to paint him into the corner. And the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record a series of clashes, many clashes that Jesus had, mostly with with religious people. Uh, And they go to show that Jesus was not afraid of of conflict. He He didn't shrink back and just say nothing. They tried to put words in his mouth. They tried to find a chink in his armor. They tried to incriminate him. They would say to him things like, uh, what, what should we do with our money? Should we give it to God or should we give it to Caesar? Thinking that if he goes with either of those, then he's trapped himself and he either uh, you know, is a, uh, insubordinate towards Caesar or he's a you know, blasphemer towards God. And Jesus answered and said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Sometimes they came to him and said, why, why are your disciples not fasting? Sometimes they came to Jesus and, and I gave him tricky questions about the law, about the afterlife. Not because they really wanted to know his thoughts, but because they're trying to trick him. And see, in, in conflict after conflict situation, Jesus did not shy away from conflict. He presented the fundamental challenges of religion. And they hated him for it. And James here also knows that his letter will cause conflict when it is read and opened in the churches. It will reveal hidden flaws within our hearts. It will challenge the prevailing culture of the churches that read and dissected his letter. And so what we're not saying here is that conflict in and of itself is bad. But it's this selfish drive behind our conflict that he's talking about here. In fact, the first steps in local church conflict, he he lays out in verses 11 and 12. This is often how it begins. James gets real specific there at the end of our our section. He says one way that this plays out in verse 11, one way that your ungodly passions and and the, the waging of war happens within the church happens when we speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters, all members of the family of faith, speaking against, speaking evil, 
against one another. Slander is the term. And he says, brothers, sisters, don't do it. Don't speak like that. Don't defame one another's character. Don't, 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 don't give the worst possible interpretation to someone's actions or their motivations. Don't gossip about them. Whether you think you're justified or not in your position, whether you think you're true or not in your position, it doesn't matter. Don't speak against others. There's ways to deal with conflict. Jesus gives us those in, in Matthew 18 and so forth. But James is saying, don't, don't take someone apart. Don't, don't destroy their, their reputation. That's how it starts. That's how this sort of conflict begins. Don't do it. So we thought a bit about the nature of, of that conflict, and it, and it seems to stem from these disordered passions within our hearts that are turned into each other, into ourselves, wanting our own glory. So he takes it a little further, a little deeper, though. And then we'll, we'll think just now, then, again, about the, the root of, his, of church conflict, the root of church conflict. The root of church conflict we see in verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> uh, and it's just laying there right on the page. We don't really need to think again about what James really means. Uh, he, he's just been talking about our passions and, and we'll do anything to climb the ladder, to get what we want. And he says in verse 4, you adulterous people, unfaithful people, it's just interesting that he uses that language. He could have used any, any term he wanted, but he chose that. You unfaithful people. He, he, he's casting the church as a, as a spouse, as a bride. And he says, you have wandered away to another lover. You adulterous people. This is what causes your wars and quarrels. Your hearts have gone away. Of course, this is a, a prominent theme within the Old Testament. Um, God in various places is portrayed as the faithful husband and Israel, his covenant people, are, are portrayed as, as, as his bride. And, and throughout various parts of Old Testament history, Israel went away from God. They chose their own path. They were unfaithful and they'd gone off in their hearts to other gods. They'd worshipped idols rather than the true God and they were known as a adulterous and unfaithful people and he's saying that here of the church you, you have gone after another lover you have abandoned God that's where all this comes from that's why there's strife and trouble and quarrels and war within your church he goes on to say here in verse four second half do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God that word friendship might come across as a, a slightly weak word, perhaps in today's understanding. Just, we're just friends, uh, you know, friendship. But the actual word there, the Greek word um, philia, refers to a great and deep devotion, a dear affection, a deep fondness. You have become devoted to the world, says James. You have a deep affection for the things of the world. And by that, he means the outside world, the, the, the world outside the church. Your heads have been turned towards another lover. Your hearts have gone uh, towards someone else. You adulterous people, he says. Don't you realize that that puts you at enmity with God? Once you have chosen another lover, you are now not in a good relationship with God. In fact, he is hostile. You are hostile towards him. 
You're an enemy. You've been using worldly tactics to indulge your passions, to vie for positions within the local church. And as such, you have become enemies with God. Again, it's just not a good place to be, is it? In your relationship before God? At enmity with him? Don't forget, this is happening within the local church. These are people who say they love God and believe in him and follow him. And James is saying here that there are enemies who are raging against God, causing strife and quarrels and fighting and wars and all manner of disorder. But they look Christian, they sound Christian, they quote Bible verses, they use Christian terminology. And yet this is the result of their religion. He goes on and describes God's response to such people within the church. God's enmity is expressed here as as jealousy. It says in verse 5, Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? What is that? God is jealous? Surely that's a bad thing, right, for God to be jealous. Jealousy is not a good thing. What's, what's, what's James saying here? God is jealous over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The spirit he's made to dwell within us. This breath of life, this spirit of life. Back in the beginning when, when the first humans were made, it says that God uh, bent down and out of the dust formed the first man called Adam. And what did he do? He breathed into him the spirit or the breath, same word, of life. And he became a living being. He became a a human. He became someone who was created for God, for his glory, to have a passion for God, to have a desire for God, to love him and enjoy him and live, live in fellowship and relationship with him. And it's over that spirit, over that inner passion that God is portrayed here as being jealous. Your heart has gone somewhere else. The bride has wandered and the husband is jealous. So is it a good thing to be jealous? Maybe, maybe uh, in your experience, jealousy is not a good thing and it produces bad, bad fruit, right? bad stuff. It's a, it's a bad character trait, we would say. But think of it like this. If you really love someone and they do something to undermine that love or to hurt that love or to harm that relationship, if they start going after something else that's going to hurt them or harm them or whatever, isn't that going to stir some sort of reaction in you? Say if you're a, a parent of children and your child makes a ser- you know, an older child makes a series of bad decisions, gets involved in, you know, have bad relationships, does bad things, do you think it's going to harm that child and it's going to, going to cause them uh, you know, tragedy? Aren't you, as a loving parent, going to, going to have some sort of jealousy over that? Uh, a righteous, let's just say, a righteous jealousy. That you see what they're doing and, 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 and you want them back and you cover them and, and you, want their life, you, know, you want their lives and your relationship to be restored. It's that kind of jealous love that that God has for his people. 
God is jealous. Jealous to restore that covenant love. Jealous to receive back again. He can't share your affections with some other gods, lovers, whatever it happens to be. God wants you. And so now we can start to see perhaps why church conflict can be so fierce, so destructive at times. You look down at the, the roots of our destruction and our conflict. James says, is it not that our passions are at war within us, within the church? We desire and do not have, so we murder, we cover, so we fight. Is there any wonder that conflicts are so damaging within the church for those who are in love with the world and, and, and enemies of God? And yet they sit together on the pew, confessing the same things, singing the same songs. So the root of church conflict is unfaithful hearts that wander off to another lover. Hasn't been a very cheerful message so far, I understand that. And I want to encourage you, uh, because there is always hope. When it comes to Jesus, there is always hope. So we're going to get now to the solution of church conflict, especially if you have, have experienced some form of, of church conflict. Maybe you have even caused it or been a part of the, the wrong side of it. There is always hope. There is always restoration. Where do we get that from in this text? We'll look down at verse 6. Glorious. But, says James, but he, that is God, gives more grace. He gives more grace. Here we have a God, uh, the husband, who, who, who jealously yearns for his people. He wants them to, to live with him and live with one another, to please him, to enjoy him together. He has high requirements for his people and how they should live and behave and interact with one another. But he gives more grace. He gives greater resources so that his people can live with him and for him. How does that grace be made available to us? How, how does it come to us? Well, the Bible opens up this great picture, this great story. And said God's grace, his, his unmerited favor, his delight comes to us through Jesus Christ, his only son. God's people, the church, are described uh, <clears throat> in some ways uh, in the Bible as an unfaithful bride. We have en masse wandered away. And yet God doesn't just come down to earth and compel us by force or switch off our brains or just you know, drag us back to himself. No, no, no. He is, a, he is a jealous, he is a loving God and he comes down to woo his people back to himself. He comes to win her heart to him again. Of course, we see in, in the Bible, to win her back to himself was not a cheap thing. It was not an easy thing for God to do. It wasn't just a case of him, us sort of nipping, nipping down to the garage for some cheap carnations and a box of roses. That was not enough to win his bride back to himself. No, no, no. The cost of winning his unfaithful bride came at him at the highest cost. The grace that he supplies to her was given so that she may return. That grace was incredibly costly. How did it come to us? God made it available to us and poured it out upon us as he gave his life for us. 
The Son of God gave his life for her, for the bride, for his, his unfaithful people, his adulterous people. The Son came down and laid his life down for us. Jesus, in the gospel, died on the cross so that he might win his bride back to himself, the church, to restore them, to come back again into that covenant love, that eternal love that God lays out for his people. Jesus came down to turn worldly passions and, and, and bent hearts back to him, hearts back to their rightful recipient, back in its intended direction. And he did this, Jesus did this, by removing that enmity, that hostility between God and his people. He did that by receiving their punishment in his own body, which he gave so that she might be restored. It happened on the cross. He gave himself up for her. That is how grace is made available to you and I. God's unmerited favor. That's what it looks like to receive God's love and his acceptance and his compassion. That is how he, it flows to us. It's through Jesus giving himself up for his people. But we must ask ourselves this question because we can't forget in this context, we're talking about conflict within the church, right? the local church, at war, tearing itself apart. Who is this grace for? <clears throat> Who is this grace for? This grace that God has, has been giving to us in Christ Jesus. This grace that came and call, will cause this deep gospel community to form. This grace that can come and overcome our quarrels and our fighting. This grace the wins our hearts. Who is it for? Well, it says down there in verse 6, the second half of verse 6. <clears throat> Got to understand this. God opposes the proud, <coughs> but gives grace <clears throat> to the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. Who are the humble? The humble are those who know they need grace. They're the ones who receive it. If you know you need grace, then you will get it. If you don't think you need grace because your life isn't that bad and it was her fault anyway and, and you know, you're just happy with, with what you believe in, you're just going to cling to this, you don't get grace. You do get grace when you know you need it. It's the humble. It's those who are unhappy with their spiritual condition left to their own devices. They are the ones who will receive, will receive grace from God. There is a promise from God for us today. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That means if you and I and we as a church community are humble, we shall receive God's grace. Simple as that. Not in a one-to-one, -one mechanical, robotronic, I am humble, therefore I receive grace. That's not what we're talking about here. But those whose hearts are truly humble shall receive the loving, costly grace of God. Isn't that amazing? It's yours today. And James goes on then to show us in these remaining few verses <clears throat> how the truly humble 
should respond to the news of the amazing grace of God in Jesus? How should we respond? Because James is all about practical religion. He's all about real religion. And we've seen this time and again. It's not just a set of beliefs that you hold in your head. It is a set of truths that God has revealed that radically changes you so that you produce good fruit, good works, so that others can see that the church is built up. That's what happens when you follow real religion. And so James wants to make this really clear, really practical. If you understand this, if you understand the gospel of grace, then it will produce this following effect within you. And he gives us these sort of six parameters or, or six, um, what have I called them here? Responses that we, we make to this good news, this gospel of grace. Number one, he says, and you can see this in your, in your text, number, uh, we're going from verse seven. He says, submit, submit therefore to God. In view of grace, in view of the knowledge that God gives grace to the humble, number one, he says, submit therefore to God. What is submission? It, it, is, it is the act of humility. It is recognizing that God is of superior authority, greater ability, more, more, more widespread knowledge and, and wisdom than you will ever know. And so it's your natural response to submit yourself to him and his grace and his desire and his heart for you. Submission is an internal heart posture that the humble will have. It is, it is effectively within yourself, and maybe even physically, a bowing down before the very presence of God, recognizing him, confessing his majesty. We're going to sing it in a few moments. We're, we're singing, Lord, I need you. I need you. Every hour, I need you. That's submission. This is your response to grace, is to submit yourself to God's loving desire for you. Second thing. Second response to grace. Resist the devil. Verse 7, and he will flee from you. Linked, of course, <clears throat> to the first one, recognizing and coming under the superior authority of God and resisting the devil, the evil one, who wants nothing more than to divide the local church and to destroy lives and to rob joy. He can't snatch you out of Jesus' hands. Jesus says that in John 17. But the next best thing is to crush, is to divide, is to split, is to create a bunch of hacked off post-Christians who don't go to church anymore, vaguely spiritual. That is perfect for the evil one. Because a church like that is anemic, it, it is powerless, it is toothless, it does nothing in the world, it brings no glory to God. Resist the devil, therefore, and he will flee from you. Deflect him away. It's an active thing that you must do with a humble heart. Pushing him away. Jesus did it. Jesus did it in the desert on your behalf. He spoke scripture back to Satan when Satan was trying to twist and lie and manipulate. Jesus was someone who was deeply averse, uh, sorry, deeply influenced by the word of God through the scriptures. He was able to resist the devil pushing back with truth against the lies of the devil, the deceptions of the devil. That's how he operates. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The more you are hearing God, being in that deep, rich communion with God, that humility towards God, the more you will have to and the more you will be able to resist the devil in the name of Jesus. The power of God is no match, but you must resist him. You must push him back. 
Third response to the grace of God. <clears throat> Draw near. Oh, what a great promise this is. Please go home and just memorize this sentence. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That is a promise. That is a promise. And it comes with a responsibility to cultivate rich communion with God. This ongoing communion, coming to, knowing, receiving, enjoying, being in the presence of God. We, we, we live that out here at Foundation Church in any number of ways, whether it's through our Sunday gatherings, whether it's through our midweek uh, foundation communities, whether it's individual personal Bible study, family devotions, worship time, prayer and worship nights. There's so many ways that we try and do this to create opportunities for you to draw near to God. But it's not ultimately my job for you to draw near to God. I'm just creating opportunities. And if they help, brilliant. Draw near to God. And he'll draw near to you. And the more you draw near to him, the more he will be found by you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleansing your hands is about action, it's about stopping sinful practices. When you are humble, when you're submitted to God, resisting the devil, you will stop sinful practices, whether it is the speech, the slander, whether it's the neglect of the poor, uh, the orphans and the widows, whether it's rejecting justice, the use of your tongue, your empty praise, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. If you're in two minds about God, you can't understand, you can't decide, are you going to follow God, are you going to follow the world? Your heart is effectively split in two. Purify your hearts. This is what the humble person will do naturally. Purify. It's not that you can purify yourself, of course, but he's saying choose. Choose God. Choose grace. God will do the purifying on your behalf. But yeah, you have an active role to receive that. Sixth. Finally, be wretched. This is all kind of comes together. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not about creating a bunch of people who are, you know, sour grapes and just <clears throat> uh, everything's depressing and there's no joy in the church. This is about a, a, a righteous expression of your sin of the conflict within your church. This is not a false display of emotionalism and just sort of bringing on the crocodile tears because somehow God will be happy with that. That's not what this is. This is a right emotional response to the depths of your sin and your rebellion and the turning of your heart towards other lovers. Be wretched, mourn, weep, and lament. I'm not saying this is the, the only gear for a Christian to be in in their lives but it's certainly one of the five or six gears that we should drop into from time to time. Not just because we want to spruce things up and try something a bit different. I'm going to try mourning today, you know, lamenting this week. But if you really understand the gospel, if you really understand what we're talking about here, what James is showing, then there must be time in our worship, our corporate worship, and in your own private devotions. Weeping for sin mourning and lamenting for your sin and the sins of your people. Even in the songs that we sing on Sundays, for example, helping one another to, to express sorrow. This is, by the way, not a list. It's not a, uh, 
you know, you don't climb up the ladder of grace or, or one, then the other, then the other, then the other. That's not how it works. This is all, all six, all six responses, facets of the same diamond, response to grace, all part of what it is to be humble before God. So let me challenge you as we, as we draw to a close. Where do your passions lie? Especially when it comes to your understanding of church and the church community. Is your, is your heart towards God? Are you, are, you, are you pleasing to him in what you think and what you say? How you act? Or is your default setting driven towards quarreling, fighting, grabbing at power, hostility, killing someone with your tongue, effectively? Where do your passions lie? What would trying to do here, working hard by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit here at Foundation Church is that we do not want to join the long list of local churches across our nation that just tears itself apart because we allow selfish attitude and worldly passions to drive our church, to take the the seat of influence. Verse 10, let's finish with this. Humble yourselves before God, and what will he do? He will exalt you. He will lift you up. God doesn't want his people to be groveling around in the dirt, woe is me. He will lift you up. You don't do it yourself on worldly terms. He will lift you up, but humble yourself before God. He will give you his grace. He will lift you up. Let's be a church that is characterized by this costly, wonderful, free grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let's allow that to drive us, to fuel us towards loving one another and loving God.